We are on lesson number seven, the title of which is Solomon's Splendor. Scriptures covered our 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, through chapter 10, and then 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 28. So Lord, we do thank you for your word. We uh, thank you for this historical account of Israel under the third king of the United Kingdom, King Solomon, and he is a case study in what uh, prosperity can do. And so we pray that you would teach us from your word, teach us these principles so that we do not follow in his path. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first section, section A, is Solomon fortifies Israel. That's 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Okay, thank you. Love those Hebrew names. <laughs> so in verses 10 and 11, now this is just kind of an account of uh, what was going on in the kingdom at that time, right after the dedication of the temple. So verses 10 and 11, and, you know, let me just say this, the title of this lesson, Solomon's Splendor, that is going to make your head swell. And he did have a lot of splendor. And, uh, you know, it, it won't be in this lesson, but it will be in the following lesson we see what will happen due to that. So it's dangerous business, but we're going to see that the Lord really did bless Solomon mm -hmm. to the max. But anyway, so in verses 10 and 11, you know, it came about at the end of the 20 years. So that is the time it took for the temple to be built, which was seven years. And then his own palace was 13 years. And uh, so Hiram, who was his you know, friend and his uh, kind of cohort in this building, the king of Tyre. So King Solomon gave Hiram 20 silly cities in the land of Galilee. So that's up in northern Israel. And uh, also we learned here that in addition to the timber, which uh, Hiram traded for um, grain and oil yearly, Hiram also gave 120 talents of gold, which is about four and a half tons of gold. And in exchange for 20 cities, in, this was in the western territory of Asher, which is up in the north, and toward the west, and so it was abutting Phoenicia. So now my question is, should Solomon have given cities in Israel to a foreign king at all. Well, no, I mean, because what, you know, in the law, and this is in Leviticus, mm -hmm. chapter 25, and then verses 3 through 10, it talks about the land of Israel, and he says, Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap, 
and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather, the land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. You are also, now this is where this applies to what Solomon did, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely forty-nine years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. So, if Solomon gave away land in Israel, cities in Israel, to a foreign king, he is not under this. So is the foreign king then going to say, okay, the Israelites can come and take the cities that I've been given in the 50th year? You know, No, they wouldn't do that. So that is another example of Solomon not following the Mosaic law. You know, he started in little, little things, you know. I mean, the first thing we read about when he became king is he immediately married Pharaoh's daughter as a political play, which was against the Mosaic Law, you know. But it's funny, in verse 12, Hiram called these cities Kabul, which means as good as nothing. <laughs> and he says, what have you given me, my brother? <laughs> these cities are a bunch of trash, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So um, he wasn't really happy with the, the return he got on his investment there. Now, in Second Chronicles, chapter 8 and verse 2, which is the parallel passage, it suggests that these cities were given back, and perhaps Solomon gave Hiram something else. And uh, we will read later in the lesson that the Queen of Sheba also gave Solomon 120 talents of gold. So the quarterly was supposing that he may have replaced Hiram's gold with the Queen of Sheba's gold. But that's supposition. Uh, but anyway, in the Second Chronicles passage, let me just read that. This, this is why they're thinking that Solomon took back these cities that Hiram thought were junk. It says about Solomon that he built the cities which Hiram had given to him and settled the sons of Israel there. So that's why, so, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch. It's not directly, they're not directly saying that, but they're supposing that that is what happened there. And you have to be careful with things like that. You know, Bible readers, theologians are always doing that, Right pushing the boundaries and saying something that the Bible does not directly say. So that's a supposition which is not necessarily biblical. So then verses 15, in verse 15, now this is the account of the forced labor 
which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Millo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, that's a town up north, Megiddo, and Gezer, which is a town toward the west. And um, <clears throat> now Hazor guarded the caravan routes from the north. Yeah, Hazor. Gezer, which is to the west, and Beth Horon, they were on the way between Joppa and Jerusalem. And that was the route that the timber took, remember? It was drifted down the coast from Lebanon the, in rafts, and the rafts were broken up, and they were taken from Joppa, Joppa to Jerusalem. And so these two cities were on the way. And so for, uh, Solomon fortified those cities to protect his trade routes. And both all of these things were to protect his trade routes. So that's good leadership. He's solidifying his country economically. And then also in verse 9, we learn that he had storage cities, cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen, and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, so that is up north, and in all the land under his rule. So he had outposts that he strengthened all over Israel and in the tributary countries that were, that were vassals to Israel at the time. Now Solomon had, he was a man of peace, right? And that's why the Lord called him to build the temple. But he did have one battle. That is in Second Chronicles chapter 8 and verse 3. It tells us about that. And it's a very short verse. It says, Then Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and captured it. So that was Solomon's one battle, and it was a successful battle. He was securing his northern border. Uh, Hamath was north of Damascus in what is now Syria. <clears throat> so this section is about physical defenses for Solomon's kingdom, which was extensive. And uh, the quarterly says, how about our defenses as Christians? Do we need defenses as Christians? You know, I like to have physical defenses. And in general, our country is relatively safe. Maybe a little less so now than it was in times past. Um, because the government is failing in its main duty, which is to, you know, to punish the evildoer. But, but even more than that, as Christians, we need spiritual protection, right? And we do have spiritual protection. And that is in one of our favorite passages in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. That's protection. So that you will be able to stand firm against the scheme of the devil. And that's what we fight against mainly. Our schemes of the devil and attacks against our mind. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, Solomon here, you know, the nation of Israel was uh, physical. It was a physical, it was a nation, had borders, had language, had culture, 
it was a physical nation among the nations of the world. The church is a group of people chosen out of the world through faith in Jesus Christ and spread out all over the world. And so it says right here that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not, we do not fight against people, but against demons. That is what our fight is against, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So our battle is against Satan and his demonic realm. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then it tells you how to do it. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So that's one of our offensive weapons. And the other one is verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Prayer is undefensible. It cannot be defended against. So that is an extremely powerful weapon we have is prayer. And so we pray, that's why we pray for our enemies. And our goal is not to destroy them. Our goal is to recruit them to our cause. And uh, prayer will do that. So, um, okay, so Solomon organizes Israel. This is section B. And this is verses 20 through 28. And how about if I read that one? So verse 20, As for all the people who are left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who are not of the sons of Israel, their descendants who are left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly, from them Solomon levied forced laborers, even to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. Okay. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550, who ruled over the people doing the work. As soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her, then he built the millow. Now three times in a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar which was before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. They went to Ophir and took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. That's a lot of gold. So verses 20 and 21, you know, we mentioned this in a one of the lessons a couple of weeks back about the forced laborers Solomon used to build the temple. Here, 
it's reiterated that even after the temple was built, Solomon still used the remainder of the peoples, the Canaanites, who were in the land, who had not been killed, as God told them to do. He used them as slaves, slave labor. But we didn't, you know, back in the lesson before we read that Solomon also had drafted 30,000 Israelites and sent them in shifts up north to Lebanon to cut timber. One month out of three, they would go up there, and that apparently has ceased when the temple and his palace were built. So I have a question about these forced labors. Was this uh, more humane than annihilation, which they were supposed to do? I have a vote for no. What, what do you, why do you think that? So a slave life is no life. So it was no gift. And the other thing, it went directly against God's will. Directly against God's will. Which is always, that is the definition of evil. <laughs> right. It is more, that's it's more of a human choice than doing what God said. Just a reminder, this is Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a lot of ites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. And then he goes on to say, do not intermarry with them or anything like that. They were to perform a genocide. That is what God commanded them to do, and they did not do it. And uh, we're going to see the outcome of that very shortly. The, the whole land of Israel went into hundreds of years of idolatry. So God's will sometimes seems harsh to us, doesn't it? That's harsh, to go in and kill everybody. He also said they're animals. I mean, he said everything that was living, kill it. So God's will sometimes is harsh. And, you know, when God disciplines us as Christians, sometimes it's pretty darn harsh. He does get the point. He gets the point across. So now, so, you know, the unbelievers and even liberal so-called Christians will say, you know, oh, that was horrible. This uh, genocide that was commanded, you know. Uh, why did the, you know, the Lord so-called kill everybody in the flood? You know, it's horrible to do. How dare he? And things like that. But... <clears throat> When they say that, they neglect to notice how long God waits before he does anything like this. You know, he told Abraham back in Genesis 15 that his descendants would go into Israel for 400 years, and when they returned, they would take the Canaanites out of the land. So the Lord gave them 400 years to repent. And they never did. 
you know, and also in the time of the flood, you know, where it said every idea of man all the time was wicked. He said, I will give them 120 years. And that 120 years was Noah building the ark. So there was a visual clue that something serious was going to happen. And the Lord waited, and they did not respond, and so judgment came. He gives a chance. And Nineveh actually did respond for a bit. They responded, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, you have Jonah where they repented, and then there's an intervening book, and then there's Nahum where they didn't repent, and the judgment came. Yeah, we isolate the judgment and don't look at all the patience that went around it and the grace that went around it before. It is a mercy on the survivors, and it's a cleansing. Yeah, so um, so yeah, God does not think the way we do. And part of becoming a Christian is to learn to think the way he does. That's part of becoming, that's a disciple. A disciple is learning how to think the way God thinks, because then you'll know how to please him. So, um, so Solomon celebrated the feasts, the three feasts. Um, and these are spelled out in Exodus 24, verses 14 through 17. That's not true. Oh, it's Exodus 23, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 17. So three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded, commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall observe the Feast of the Harvest, of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field, also the Feast of the Ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. So he celebrated these with the appropriate sacri sacrifices. And Second Chronicles chapter 8 and 13 also says that he performed the uh, prescribed daily, weekly, and monthly sacrifices. So the sacrificial system at the temple was fully implemented. And that was a good thing. And then, so, you know, Solomon, he was a mixed bag in his obedience, you know just like we are, just like we are, a mixed bag. Verses 26 through 28, Solomon, Solomon was a good uh, business person, and he, he knew how to make some money. So he built a merchant marine fleet for trade, and this he obtained uh, 16 tons of gold from Ophir, and this was a venture in combination with his friend Hiram of Tyre. The gold was flowing in Israel during Solomon's day. Now, there's a little thing in the quarterly about this place, Ophir. You know, Ophir is mentioned in one of the first Bible, uh, chapters of the Bible, in the time of Eden, Ophir, the gold of Ophir. And uh, I think that's true. I may be wrong about that. But anyway... <clears throat> The uh, the quarterly has a little blurb on Ophir, and they postulate, again, this is a little bit of speculation, that Ophir 
could have been in Arabia. It could have been in India or something like that. But anyway, no, no one knows exactly where Ophir was. Let's go to section C. Solomon impresses foreign royalty. Thank you. So verses uh, 6 and 7, the queen of Sheba had heard reports, rumors, mm -hmm. and she didn't believe the rumors. She didn't believe it, and she came to see. Is this true? Sounds amazing. It says, it was, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports. You know, and I, I think that goes along with uh, Christianity. There's a lot of reports. A lot of people don't believe the reports. You know, if you want to see if Christianity is true, Jesus tells you how. Try it. He says, try it, and you'll see if my teaching is from the Father. So um, that's what she did. She came. She saw. She saw. And then she believed the reports. Yes. And then some. Yes. So, um, so verse 1, now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, and the fame of Solomon was concerning the name of the Lord. So Solomon and the true God were associated. The name of Solomon and the name of the true God were associated. And she came to test him with difficult questions. Difficult questions. Now I have a list of difficult questions. This is from the quarterly. And I thought these are great difficult questions. So, for example... Explain how the three persons of the Godhead can share the same divine nature and yet remain distinct. So that is the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Have you ever tried to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to someone? I learned a new word over the last week. It's called antinomy. Antinomy. Is that the one on the screen? No, it's not in this. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> What and what an and yeah what an antinomy is 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 a concept that is um, true, but it appears to they it, they appear to cancel each other, and this is one of those. The the uh, I was going to look it up, but it's going to take too long. And here's another antinomy. And I, I find the doctrine of the Trinity easier than this next one. This next one drives me crazy. Explain how or if God's sovereignty and human free will can coexist. God is sovereign. But what does that mean? He rules everything. Every detail of everything. And also... The Bible teaches that. The Bible also teaches that we have responsibility to choose. Try to reconcile that in your head. For me, it makes my mind explode. And I, and I, actually, I was reading a book about this, which Dane gave me. And uh, the, the book is actually by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's coming next fall. And it's called God's Will, Man's Will. And then it's talking about predestination, sovereignty, and free will. 
that's where I learned that word antinomy. Yeah, the part of that that really, really waxes me, and I thought I had it, and then I tried to explain it to Susanna last night, and it was a mess. <laughs> I, and she says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, that's because <laughs> I'm having trouble. Because the issue that gets me, this is the issue that gets me. Romans chapter 3. It talks about the nature of man. And it talks about the fact that there is no one. And then it repeats it. It says no one, and then it says no, not one will seek God. No one. That's our state. So, if that is true, how can God expect us to choose him? You see? Yes, and that's election. And the election is that out of the mass of humanity that is all headed like a group of lemmings into the lake of fire, like a whole group of lemmings into the lake of fire, God chooses to help some enough so that their will will choose him. But the will has to choose him themselves. And that that verse is, no one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So somehow the Lord does something to the elect, where their will is not bound by their nature. You know, we have a will, but it's bound, it's limited by our nature. So, and, and you're right, people don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. And I thought I was, I'd found a teaching that was against that, and now I realize, well, maybe not. Anyway, it's a difficult concept. <laughs> and it, and I, I have one more book I'm going to get. This one's by Norm Geisler. It's called Chosen But Free. And I do think Arnold Fruchtenbaum is the closest to biblical truth that I have seen yet. You know, because I read Calvin when I was younger. And I believe totally in Calvinism. I believe that we just didn't have any choice. I believe that faith had to be given to us first, and then we are made to believe. That's what the Calvinists teach, you know. And so it's like you're a robot. It's not, that's not how it is, though. That is not how it is. We do have to choose. Anyway, we could talk, I, I could talk about this for six hours, and we'll be at the same place. Yeah. And then the last uh, question they have here, which is difficult, which is explain the relationship between the divine and human natures in Christ. And, yeah, I mean, come on. So anyway, <laughs> so the Queen of Sheba tested Solomon with hard questions. Hard questions. And, verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. And um, so Sheba, of which the nation of which she was the queen, was thought to be in the area of modern-day Yemen, kind of in the southeastern, south, yeah, southeastern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And spices were Sheba's specialty. And then she also brought this uh, Almug 
wood, which apparently is very rare. So actually, Solomon was a, a very blessed individual. There was no one wiser in history except Jesus, who was God himself. So he has an advantage, <laughs> you know. Um, so, and, you know, would that go to your head? Probably. That would probably go to your head. So verses 4 and 5, when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway, by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. It was overwhelming to her. So I have a proverb here. Now the proverbs were also written by Solomon, most of them, a lot of them. This is Proverb 14 and verse 34. And this was the state of Israel at this time, early in Solomon's reign. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. In early in Solomon's reign, righteousness was being practiced. This, the temple was set up. It was built according to the plans God had given him. They were, they were performing the sacrifices according to what the law said. They were worshiping at the temple. Solomon was, for the most part, being obedient to the Mosaic law. And so it was a kingdom of righteousness. And they were exalted. They were exalted. And then we'll see what happened later. And, you know, I think that is can be said of our country, too, of the United States. You know, we, the people who founded the United States came here to promote the gospel. That's what their motive was. And um, they wanted to worship the Lord without uh, oppression from government, the government, and so they came here. And the Mayflower Charter was very clear that they were making a contract with God, which is different than Israel, where God made the contract with Israel. So that is a contract that will not fail. The United States contract was man-based, human-based, and so it is failing. But, um, you know, that's why I think the Lord blessed the United States for all these years. And now we're seeing that blessing start to evaporate. So I, I just put a question here. Do you think hearing things like that from the Queen of Sheba might go to your head? She was overwhelmed by Solomon and all his wisdom and all this glory and all this wealth. Yeah, so Solomon was in a very, very dangerous situation here. You know, we think that when things are going bad for us, that that's bad, it's dangerous. Spiritually, that is not as dangerous as prosperity because difficulty drives us to the Lord, has a tendency to do that. So again, a proverb. Proverbs 16, verses 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So God hates pride. Okay, so we're in uh, section D. Solomon multiplies Israel's wealth. So that's First uh, Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 29. Now the weight of gold 
which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. So that was his yearly gold intake, and that translates to 25 tons of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear, and arms on each side of the seat, and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were, stra were standing there on the six steps, on the one side and on the other, Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price a chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. Solomon lived high on the hog, as they would say down south. So verse 14, his yearly gold revenue was about 25 tons. Then in verse 15, in addition to that, he collected duties from traders and merchants in caravans passing through, you know, these trade routes that he had fortified and protected. And you know what? Uh, you need that for good commerce. You need protection. You know, lawlessness will kill business. And we see that today for you know, these places, uh, San Francisco, for example. All the, all the drugstores are shutting down. Why? Because they they don't, because they're lawless. Right. So you need protection of the government to have healthy business. And Solomon understood that. Understood. Yeah. Our leaders today have, have fallen into a false philosophy, yes. the philosophy of uh, communism, basically, socialism. People are robbing trains now? I hadn't heard that. Oh, I heard it. Is that right? So it's like the Wild West yeah. before there were states. So no, we need John Wayne. <laughs> right. 
including John Wayne come back. Yeah, so also, remember, it talks about 12 deputies, and we learned about these 12 deputies uh, a couple of, a few lessons ago where um, there were the governors over the different uh, areas, over the tribes, and it was their responsibility to provide for Solomon's palace once a month, not once a month, once a year, one month out of the year. That's what I'm trying to say. One month out of the year. So, uh, like I said, Solomon was living high on the hog. Then verses 16 and 17, he made these decorative shields covered with gold. Those did not last too long. Because when Solomon died and in his son's reign, Pharaoh Shishak attacked Jerusalem and took those shields. So that didn't last too long. So this is a question from the quarterly. If you suddenly had the wealth of Solomon, how would it affect your walk with God? Would being suddenly, a, you know, you're a billionaire. Would that affect your walk with God? Say you won the lotto, you know, $600 million. Yeah, so we, we, we have one answer that, yes, it would probably affect you. And um, then one answer that, if you suddenly became wealthy and you're hanging on to the Lord, it would be, it would, your giving would increase. And I think that that is mentioned at the, in the fourth chapter of Philippians. The, the idea is that if you are generous, the Lord will continue to bless you materially, not for you, but so you can be a conduit of blessing to others. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a problem, but it, it is a danger. And, you know, I think money is one of the greatest idols we have today. It no, it can be um, secret, yeah. secret Especially. giving. Yeah, and that's what the Lord that point. tells you to do. Don't draw attention to yourself. It's not secret. Me, it's yes. So Solomon had a very impressive throne. It had six steps leading up to it, lions on either side of each step, and lions on either side of the throne. Very beautiful. And there was no throne like it. So that was very impressive. So I have a question for you again. How do you reconcile? We've read this several times, the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 17, how the kings of Israel were supposed to act they were not to have many wives. They were not to enrich themselves. And they were not to have many horses. Okay, so that was from Deuteronomy 17. But then in 1 Kings 3 and verse 13, God told Solomon directly, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. Riches and honor. How do you reconcile those two verses? I think we just did with what you're saying about if you get wealth, use it to bless others. Use it to bless others. So, you know, one of the things that he could have done, and I think he, he did do this to some extent. He, he you know, blessed the nation. 
but it's a, it's a temptation, definitely, to take it for yourself, to take it for your desires. And, um, you know, that's why I, I believe that you need to make a plan for giving, a giving plan. You have to think about it before it happens in your mind what you're going to do so that you remain dependent on the Lord because that we are dependent. He is dependent on the Lord even though he has all this wealth, all this fame, all this power, all this wisdom. He got it all from the Lord. So, But we know that this would be a stress on your ego. And uh, Solomon also already has shown inklings of where he will go astray from the law, as all of us do. Um, and in our next lesson, we'll see how he went whole hog <laughs> off the reservation. No, we, don't, we, we want to get closer and closer to the Lord as time goes on. I have just one more proverb. I know I'm taking up time. So this is uh, another proverb, which I think is, uh, let's see, this is Proverbs 30. It's the second half of verse 8 and verse 9. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. That's where we want to be. And if we are blessed, and, you know, we pray that we're blessed, help us become a blessing for others in a greater capacity. So the part of the quarterly that is does not cover, or the part of the scripture that quarter, quarterly does not cover is Second Chronicles 8. 1 verses 928. And so we already talked about Hiram appears to have given the cities back, which he called Kabul, which means good for nothing, which Solomon then improved. We also noted that uh, Solomon stopped the drafted labor but continued the foreign slave labor. Verse 11 indicates that he knew Pharaoh's daughter was not acceptable as a wife. And that is because he did not bring her into David's palace because the ark had been in David's palace. And he didn't think he should bring an unbelieving foreigner into the place where the ark was. So that's an indication that he knew <laughs> that that was not the right thing to do to marry Pharaoh's daughter. And then, and the quarterly makes a mistake. Verse 26 it talks about, let me look at that real quick. And this mistake that the quarterly makes is made by the amillennialists and the replacement theologians. So chapter 8, verse 26. No, I'm sorry. Chapter 9, verse 26. Says of Solomon, he was the ruler over all the kings from the Euphrates River even to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. And that make, so they make the comment that that indicates that the promise that God gave to Abraham in chapter 15 was fulfilled under Solomon. But they don't pay attention to the details because 
What God promised to Abraham in chapter 15 was from the Euphrates River, not to the border of Egypt, but to the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, which is in Egypt. And uh, I think, you know, the Nile breaks up into a delta in the north. And so Arnold Fruchtenbaum has written about this, and he is so good. He posits that it's the easternmost tributary of the Nile Delta that he's talking about. So they're off on that detail. The other detail is that these lands did not all become Israel. They were vassal states. They retained their own identity, and they paid taxes to Solomon. And the last thing is that that promise in Genesis 15 says that Israel would possess this land forever. And we know that after Solomon, they lost it for a time. So that does not fulfill that. That will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And that's the end. Amen.